with me asking you to very briefly outline the premise of the popular film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, well, it's um, basically this teenager. Teenager. Yeah. Who fools his parents into thinking that he's sick so he can get a day off and uh, has many escapades around town with his mates. In essence, then, Ferris Bueller, he's probably... So he's American, he's in high school. Mm-hmm. I'd say he's probably about 16, 17. He might be older, actually. He might be 18. Yeah, no, I think 16, 17. 16, 17. Yeah. And he doesn't want to go into school. He doesn't think school is cool. No. So he... Has a day off. He's sticking it to the man. He is sticking it to the man. And it's Ferris Bueller's day off. He takes a day off and he gets up to a wide range of escapades with his mates. Now, in many ways, I think Ferris Bueller's day off is an embodiment of how the old dislike the young. Mm -hmm. Because not just in the film where the the old fuddy-duddies, the teacher, the man that you previously (laughs) mentioned, not only do they hate Ferris Bueller, but my theory is that as you get older... Like, when you're in your teenage years, the theory is you're supposed to like Ferris Bueller. Mm. And lots of people do like Ferris Bueller. They see him as some sort of icon. If anyone hasn't seen the film, I suggest you either watch it or... probably Because my audience is majority school kids, so they'll probably... You know, there might be a meme or something or a... They'll probably be tweeting it to each yeah, other. Yeah, tweet... Why don't you tweet Ferris Bueller to each other? Follow someone's story who's watching it. Yeah. But have a look and see whether you like Ferris Bueller or not. Because my theory is, as you get older, you begin to dislike Ferris Bueller. This is a quote I picked out that sort of embodies why I don't like Ferris Bueller. But why the young people, to which I'm not a group anymore, the young people (laughs) might like Ferris Bueller. He says, I do have a test today. That wasn't bullcrap. I've changed that word. He's edited that. Uh, So I do have a test today. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They could be fascist anarchists. It still doesn't change the fact that I don't own a car. And it's that kind of... um, Short-sightedness. Narcissistic. Hedonistic. Love that. Pursuit of pleasure. Not really caring about anyone else. That characterises Ferris Bueller. And has characterised the way that the old have viewed the young. So in this episode of Repeat Until Funny, the history podcast that tries to learn the lessons of the past. Oh. See, that's quite good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was last week. You've nailed that one. Yeah. Um, we're going to try and learn the lesson that comes from uh, the youth, mm. in the sense that the old always seem to hate the young. Mm. So my question is, I've got a question here. Why do older generations keep hating the young? And I could have changed that to make it more relevant. To why do older generations keep hating on the young? Oh, that that is more. You got to deal with the haters. That's more down with the kids. Kids. Yeah. Now, what are some of the this? Because we're both millennials, aren't we? Uh, either millennials or Gen Z. I don't know. I think we're millennials are sort of ninety. I'm ninety six. I think you're like the last of the millennials. Yeah. What are some of the stereotypes that the older generation have of millennials? Millennials. Because while while we now hate the current generation of teenagers, yeah. we hopefully don't hate ourselves. No. Well. Well. No. <laughs> to a healthy extent. Um, well, millennials, uh, the prejudice that I've received mm. as a millennial. Is um, considered to be lazy, yeah. always on their phones, yeah. uh, obsessed with like video games and what like what not. Yeah, yeah. The sort of stereotypes. Yeah, I think most of them resonate. Sort of narcissistic, mm-hmm. so focused on yourself, disconnected because of social media, mm-hmm. entitled. You know, I mean, if someone said that to me <laughs> straight away, on, I put it on my wall. Angry react. <laughs> Not having that. Yeah. Then I'd post a picture of myself, a selfie. Angry. No, looking crying. Oh. Crying. That's, that's going to resonate. And I'd put a message saying like, oh, it's so unfair when people yeah. criticise you. you. You need that one where it's like above your, the picture and it's just too long so you yes. have to open it and it's paranoid. <laughs> yeah, I'd do a massive Jesus. essay on why people shouldn't be mean to other people. <laughs> and you know it's hit home because it gets like 20,000 likes. Yeah. yeah that's how it's going to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a quote to bring it back to history. And we're going to look at three different historical periods where the old have 
seem to dislike the young and we're going to explore why and what are the patterns that occur throughout them mm. the first is ancient greece the old didn't like the young ancient no. Wow. no the second is 19th century british society mm. and then we bring it up to the traditional view of the young and the birth of the teenager that yeah. term in the 1950s and 60s america they're not teenagers anymore well, they're really old. I said the birth of the teenagers. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And we're also going to see whether youth is actually a state of mind or whether it's related to age. Okay. So that was actually a really incisive point that you made there. Of course, yeah. Joseph Conrad, author of, as you know. Yep. Yep. Oh, we hardly <laughs> need to say it, do we? <laughs> no, it's, it's Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. In 1898, he wrote, I remember my youth and the feeling that will never come back anymore. The feeling that I could last forever, outlast the sea, the earth, and all men. The deceitful feeling that lures us on to perils, to love, to vain, to effort, to death. What do you take from that quote? Apart from a lot of long words that you don't understand. <laughs> well, I'd... being a fellow, um, uh, I was gonna say architect, what's the, what's the clever one? Of what? Academic. Academic. Academic, yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what he's saying is, there's, I think there's a special feeling to being young. Mm. Like, and what is that feeling? How would you describe that feeling? It's just... Um, what does it do to your actions? Well, when I, when I was particularly young, I'm mm. talking teenager, I found that I was always right, but often sort of, like, corrected. So, like, everything I thought was correct, but I was wrong all the time. That's interesting. That links yeah. to a quote that we're going to come back to in a moment. Yeah. In essence, I would say that Conrad is saying that youth emboldens. It makes you... Mm. Young people are more willing to take risks. Yeah. They're more willing mm. to do things that other people wouldn't do. And I, just, I just think you, you feel everything a bit more brighter. Mm. I've always said as you get older, things don't get worse. They get more grey. Yes. Yeah. That, that things just get more boring and yeah. less important. You're sort of numbed to the extremes of yeah. human experience. Exactly. Let's have a look at some very early background. So pre-ancient Greece. It's important to say that for millions of years, most humans and their ancestors didn't live beyond their teenage years anyway, as we would define them. Uh-huh. As in, for most of human history, you were lucky to live to the age of about 25, 30 and we're talking way, way back here, yeah. to pre-ancient Greece. So, throughout much of that, our sort of youth ancestors actually ruled the earth. It was their job to secure and share resources, to do everything that laid the foundations for modern society. Oh. It's only as older ad- adults gradually took over, building upon the foundations that these younger generations had done, only then does ageism start to become a factor. Mm. Because before that, everyone's young. Yeah. I mean, I suppose by extension, everyone's old as well. Yeah. You have a very small window where you're actually at your full capacity and then you die. I wonder if they get a bit where there's like 25-year-olds going, back in my day, <laughs> talking to the seven-year-old. Yeah, back in my day, a seven-year-old. When a mammoth would come along, <laughs> a seven-year-old wouldn't think that they would be able to deal with it. <laughs> They're too busy now looking at their cave painting. <laughs> Ancient Greece then, mm. where we do get a a bigger divide between the old and young. This is a quote from Aristotle. They think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. Another one from Aristotle. Young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. What do you think that means? Uh, I think that's like... The second one is... um... Because I have an experience, sort of like getting knocked down, mm. they can't really speak from place of authority when they talk about the world. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah. As, as in they haven't had those experiences mm. yet. They act as if they know better than people that have. Yeah, Aristotle. So I'm gonna run away and start my own club. My yeah, what well, will be better than your society that spent thousands yeah. of years being created? Aristotle and the Greeks defined life in three stages. So the first stage was childhood, which is sort of your early life, and that was defined by a lack of something, a deficiency of something, mm-hmm. as in you haven't quite yet reached what you're going to reach. And there's this idea, just off the top of my head, of course, <laughs> all of this, yeah. and the idea of 
entelechy, in that every process contains a seed which is desiring to come to fruition, an end. So every process has within it a sort of potential. So I like to think of it with like football manager or FIFA. Every player has a core potential that they can reach. It could be 78, Mm -hmm. it could be world class, it could be average. And that's the idea of entelechy. As Aristotle put it, it's funny you remember that remember the pronunciation of that different on two of two occasions. Yeah, and yeah. um, well, I'm just trying to hedge my bets there. <laughs> so, for a child to become an adult, there's that seed within them mm-hmm. that grows and germinates, and childhood is the period where it hasn't yet reached that potential. Okay. The final stage, so we're going to miss out the middle stage. The final stage is, of course, adulthood, where you have that cultural and moral status as an adult within society. Mm-hmm. The middle one. What do you think? Adolescence? Yeah, transition to adulthood, youth, yeah. in, its, in essence. The idea that you're, you're growing, yeah. and that you're, or that you, maybe you've grown, but you're grown physically, but you're still reaching that point where you have the moral and cultural capital that an adult does. Okay. Why do you think the Greeks were concerned about this period of time, that period of transition from child to adult? Uh, because... It's very tough to sort of like be aware that you're growing and becoming mm. a more important part of society, yet still be seen as lower. You know. Yes, I mean? it, yeah. and there's that idea of uh, precociousness. Exactly. What is precociousness? Took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to put them back in your mouth, and I'm going to ask you to explain what precociousness is. Uh, it's some sort of. Have you ever seen the t- the TV program uh, Child Genius? No. No. Oh. Well, it's like loads of kids. Just picture them. So ki- yeah. they're supposed to be the smartest kids in the country. Nerdlingers. Yeah. They, they, you would describe them as precocious. What sort of characteristics would they exhibit? Uh, arrogance in their intelligence. Yeah. Like, sort of think that they're better than other people. That's what it means to be precocious. Yeah, yeah, to show dominance. <laughs> so this transition between childhood and adulthood is a real fascination to the Greeks. Here's a quote from... Socrates, not Aristotle. He said, the children now love luxury. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. (laughs) Children are tyrants, not servants of the households. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs and tyrannise over their teachers. Sounds like a bit of a foddy-doddy to me. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like the man. Sounds like the man trying to keep us down. And again, we see this is the repetition of history. Isn't I mean, it? He, he could be talking about now. Yeah, yeah, I could have put that in today and maybe not the stuff about crossing their legs. Crossing I don't, I don't know many people that object to that. Yeah. Or um, eating pomegranates. Or... <laughs> Gobble up dainties at the table. <laughs> You've got to eat your, your greens before you eat your dainties. dainties that's obvious. <laughs> um, how do you think the Greeks responded to this fear, this time of possibility? Uh, made sort of schools, trying to teach them. Absolutely, schools. Yeah. Um, why are schools so important uh, to instilling certain attitudes? I think because as a teacher, uh, it sort of shows authority in elders, because mm-hmm. there's an older person telling you what to do, and just teaching them like the, this is the correct way to behave. Not brainwashing, obviously, but... Yeah, this idea, so one of the big ones was the idea of civic responsibility, Mm. which is obviously taught through schools. And one of the big ways they did that was through languages. Yeah. In the sense that they would teach, obviously, the classic languages as a tool to unite people because they speak those same languages. All right. To prevent the idea of individualisation of one person just thinking that they... Like nationalism. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Okay. I'll edit that out. As I said, it was also regarded as a time of possibility. Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. What do you know about Alexander the Great? Uh, conquered the known world in 80 days. Yeah, and he was incredibly young. Yeah. He, and, oh, yeah. He, no, that's, it's not in 80 days. It was before he was 23 or something. Yeah, not around, around the world. <laughs> yeah, go on. So, yeah, he conquered the world very, very young, which mm. goes to show that the power of youth almost, mm. that while they... As Socrates said, they have many complaints about the youth. They also see 
its inherent power. But that power has to be checked. And civic responsibility, teaching, developing languages, um, making sure they follow the traditions of the elite are really important for creating that unity and common set of values. Mm. Another way was uh, physical training. What kind of physical training do you think they would be doing? Uh, Olympic stuff, running, yeah. weights. And why? What's, how would their physical training be different to the kind of physical training that mainly boys go through today? Uh, I mean, girls go through it today as well, but I'm saying theirs was mainly boys. Um, would it be t- to do like, army stuff? Yeah, yeah, soldiers. Yeah, It was in the Spartan tradition. Oh, yeah. Well, they used to beat each other up. Who? Spartans. In what way? Well, that well, it, that it was a way to sort of like instill brotherliness. So they put all like the kids into a pit and went right, how about it? And they started beating each other up. And then at the end of it, you had like a newfound respect. Yeah. It was like, oh, this guy can take a hit. And I was going, can't. Oh. I think that's the the general idea that through your aggression, mm. you will show your worth. That's how you show your worth: your willingness to fight for principle or idea. Mm. And especially in that early stage, it's like fighting just because someone's told you to fight. Yeah. And it's instilling that discipline. I thought there was a comparison that could be drawn there to maybe the Hitler youth. Yeah. To a certain extent. Not obviously comparing the ancient Greeks to the Nazis, but in the sense that these youth movements often have exercise Mm -hmm. at the core of them. Because exercise is so important for uniting. And just like team activity. I don't want to go straight from Nazi Germany to the Scouts. But yeah, yeah, but no, there's a link. We're going to talk about the Scouts yeah. in a bit, 19th century England. Because mm-hmm. there is a link, because you're united around a common purpose, mm. and things like physical exercise are one of the most obvious ways that you can exhibit your efforts for the nation, because yeah. you're literally sweating for them. Whereas if you're, you know, I, I show my dedication for the nation by writing a pamphlet. People don't, it doesn't have that same uniting element. Writing a pamphlet is something you do on your own. Yeah. Whereas doing a big tug of war between two people, yeah. two teams. Well, it's, it's like measurable, isn't it? Exactly. Like you can measure like how far you've pulled something. Yeah, definitely. And it's measurable how united you can become as a, a country. Yeah. It's a physical symbol of that. So that's one way, another way that they use to uh, unite these troublesome youths. Mm-hmm. The final one is perhaps the most controversial one and the one that is hardest for the modern ears to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, have you got an idea of what it could be? Uh, discipline? No, it's this... It comes under the umbrella of this idea of inversion, which is that it's basically a ritual used to manage this change between childhood and adulthood. And the way you do it is you invert the expectations on you. So if you're a young woman, you're obviously expected to grow into a graceful adult woman uh-huh. what they would do as part of this ritual is young women would wear beards almost like this is not what we're not going to become but with boys there'll be something called pederasty which is that boys take on a subservient or a passive role in relations with older men uh-huh. so the idea that they're totally beholden to their sort of their tutor their yeah. role model their icon and one of the big ways that this um took hold and one of the big examples of this is a very famous example that they talk about when we look back at ancient Greece is that older men would often have sexual relations with younger boys and it was a way again number one of asserting dominance Mm -hmm. and saying this is what the elite can do to you we are in charge Mm -hmm. but two also this idea of inversion that if you don't act like a man this is what it is this is you acting quote-unquote, like a woman kind yeah. of thing. So inverting it. Okay. And well, obviously... I've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. Why do you think... So that tradition was uh, hugely used mm. in ancient Greece and in Rome. It dies out, though. It dies out in the Renaissance and it dies out in the rise of one particular idea. Do you know what that idea that would be? Uh, uh, children of the future? No, think about, they weren't so much appalled by the fact that it was older men with younger boys. Mm. No, they weren't so offended by the fact that it was old with young. Mm. They were offended that it was man with boy. Oh, uh, the rise of homophobia? Homophobia through? Through 
Religion. 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 Christianity. Oh, got it. So Christianity outright bans homosexual relations. Mm. It becomes a massive sin. And as a result, this goes away. This idea of that's a way of asserting your power. Instead, the church becomes much more prevalent in instilling ideas. Yeah. Because, after all, the, the Ten Commandments don't change. They're not updated, no. you know, with modern lingo or anything. <laughs> uh, it's still thou shalt. Thou shalt not Snapchat. <laughs> on every Thursday. Thou shalt not ghost. <laughs> <laughs> ghost by swipe yeah. that material. Um, Francis Bacon, not the painter. Okay. The Renaissance thinker. And we're going to use this almost as a bridge from the ancient to more modern versions of youth. Francis Bacon said during the Renaissance period, youth is an age where imagination dominates. Okay. Particularly a moral imagination. So morality dominates and that youth stimulates the, the moral idea. Yeah. Does that chime with you? Moral in the sense of this is right and this is wrong. Uh, yeah, because you're very, you're very like, you're very certain Mm. In your teenage years, you're always like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And there's no... It's not that sharp. Yeah. <laughs> Fire's not that hot. <laughs> I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Through all of this, there's those, those clashes between the older and the younger generation. Through things like, um, in the modern day particularly, protests are dominated by the young. Mm-hmm. And the old is sort of like, oh, I can't be bothered, whatever. Because I've experienced it not working. Yes. Yeah. Whereas the young still think that they can mould the world to their choosing. Mm-hmm. So that's our bridge via the Renaissance to Victorian Britain. What do you know about Victorian Britain? Uh, ruled by Queen Victoria. <laughs> yeah, they're good. It was in Britain. <laughs> it was in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, made up Britain? Uh, Empire. Yes. Age of Empire. Age of Empire. How do you think that might um, feed into the way that they're educating or instilling discipline in their youth? Well, it was very Britain first, wasn't it, I think? Mm-hmm. So pride in the empire, patriotism. Mm. Pride, pride, in the, pride on the flag. The lion, Britannia. Yeah, yeah all that. Uh, what's jingoism? Jingoism is it's like fear of other races. I yes. Think. Yeah. And a feeling of a feel of superiority to mm-hmm. the race. And that comes from a uh, popular song at this Jingle time. Jingle bells. <laughs> That's like your hickory dickory <laughs> job. <laughs> um, it comes from a popular song where they use the phrase by jingo. Have you uh, heard that? I've, I've heard the term by, by jingo. By like jingo. a uh, by jingo. By so like Zoo, like in the film Zulu. Yeah, they would say by Jingo. Yeah, and it is. It's like this, um, this poem which exalts the benefits of the British Empire, and it's almost like by Jingo, we're going to go there and we're going to kill them, we're yeah. going to take over their country. But it's more than that in many ways. There's this idea of social Darwinism. Okay. What do you think that could mean? Social Darwinism. What's yes. regular Darwinism? Uh, survival of the fittest. Yeah. Like weak animals will die. So out. that's in the physical realm. In yeah. the physical realm, like a gammy giraffe with a really short neck is not going to live. Uh-huh. Whereas the big strong giraffe will get the leaves. It will mate with another big strong giraffe. And it will create more big yeah. strong giraffe. So survival of the fittest in the physical sense. Yeah. In the social sense, what uh-huh. do you think social Darwinism could be? Uh, sort of like, is, is it maybe finding the cleverest people and sort of like. To a certain extent, the cleverest and strongest societies mm. was the idea. Oh, okay. How could that justify an empire? Uh, well, it's, no, they had an idea of like spreading culture. Mm. Like it's not, it's, we're not taking them over. We're giving them stuff. It's like a fair. Have you heard exchange. of the white man's burden? Yes, that's a Rudyard Kipling mm. poem. It's like um, it has to uplift the colonies mm. and like uh, teach these. You can't see me doing the air quote. Backwards nations. Barbarians. Yeah, barbarians. I was also doing the air quote. And teach them how to be civilised. Yeah, it's a civilising mission that Britain Mm. can bring these ideas of liberty and justice and Mm. fair government. Trains. Trains, yeah. To these barbarous nations. Mm. How do you think that might impact on the youth? Uh... 
Oh no, were there a lot of protests back then? Well, it was a time of huge political upheaval in the sense that there was big extensions in who could vote. Mm. Uh, There were big extensions in a particular class of people. Mm -hmm. What class was that? Uh, Middle. Uh, Working. Working and middle. But yeah, mainly the working, because through this period, Britain goes through their industrial revolution. Mm. We have the factories. um, Coal. Coal. Any other? Steel. Steel. (laughs) <laughs> all all the materials yeah, all of those materials <laughs> which we're clearly experts on <laughs> and because of this that this invigorates a fear of the youth a uh-huh. fear of the rapscallion mm. very famously these were portrayed in things like Charles Oliver Twist yeah yeah Oliver Twist who was the the rapscallion in that not oh, really Oliver Jammy Dodger <laughs> yeah try that again it's, it's oh the artful the Dodger, artful <laughs> Dodger. <laughs> Yeah, the Artful Dodger. This example of, like, um, <laughs> criminal youths yeah. seen as people... These criminal youths sort of going round, being advised by these wicked people like Fagan, mm. and basically causing havoc. And the big emphasis that people put on it, they were like, these are people who have experienced the adult world too early. They've yes. been exposed. I've heard that, yeah. What, do you, what does that mean, then? Well, because they, they had to work, didn't they? So mm-hmm. they went to the factory. So it's like um, it's like growing up too quickly. Yeah, which like, is something that we see very much today, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like, yeah. Because if um, the idea is that if a grown-up had the ability to sort of run around and do all this stuff, they would, but because they've been here for so long, they've sort of got to know this sound. And, mm. and they've been educated, perhaps. I don't know. In response to that, what do you think the government is going to do? Uh... Well, probably just, like, set up by the schools. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, right. So, so this is the development of institutions for all. Oh, right. In the sense that before this, there was quite a clear class structure in the sense that the working class, which weren't even really considered the working class, they were just the workers, they came in and did work that required no training. Mm-hmm. There was a very clear order, and the elites, the landed aristocracy taxed their money and had the property Mm. and that was the basic relationship but with the opening up of the factories and wage labour and as you say an increase in the middle class and the working class and also an increase in the number of people who can vote Mm -hmm. more people are demanding but also as we seen, requiring additional education when do you think schools were made free for working class children didn't mean all of them could attend, but those that could attend, it didn't cost them any money. 1871. Ooh, 1880. Oh, so pretty close. So in the later half of the, the 19th century, we have education for all. Mm. Why is education so important at this point? Why do you think the... the the older generations are going to be so concerned with the education of the youth. Uh, is it for the same reason as the Greeks? Pretty much, yeah. Like, um, they need to instill moral values into the youth at mm-hmm. a young age. So there's, there's uh, the one component, which is the moral values, and they want them to imbibe the ideas of Britain and the empire and all, this, all that stuff we talked about. Also, the labour market, as in all the people that are going to work, what kind of people do you want to work in the factories? Uh, Both in terms of their physical qualities and their mental qualities. Well, big and strong. Yes. So, what kind of people tend to be big and strong? Uh, oh, young people. Yeah. Yeah, young people are big and strong. So, young people are going to be the primary labour force. Mm. So, as a result, they want to train that labour force to be the best that they can possibly be. What kind of moral things do you think they want going to want to try and instil in them? Uh, or... Uh, no. That's all work and jo- no play makes Jack a doll. No, they don't want that. That's the wrong one. They want all work. Yeah, all work. Um, all work and no play makes Jack an upstanding citizen. Upstanding citizen. Um, well, I don't know, what would they try and install? Tell me. So, obviously, training in the essentials. Yeah. So, literacy, mm. being able to read, being able to write. Yeah. Not so you can produce a fantastic novel, yeah. but so you can read the basic instructions. So you can write your name in the check-in sheet. And read the factory rules, which tell you what will happen if you sing or whatever. Yeah. So they used to have rules like, 
if you whistled or if you hummed, you'd be docked a day's wages. Really? Yeah. Why? Because it's about discipline. Okay. And what, what do those rules on the factory wall mirror earlier in life? The school rules? The school rules. Oh, right, yeah. So it's about creating that power dynamic between the boss and the worker. Okay. In the school, teachers the boss, kids are the worker. What are your visions of a Victorian school? Uh, you know, I miss Trunchbull walking around all the time. Mm. Like, just ver- very sort of like strict. Like, little kids in shorts with a cap on. Don't talk until you're spoken yeah. to. If you have an answer, you need to stand up and give that answer. Mm-hmm. Corporal punishment for those that step out of line. Yeah. Getting, like, lashed with a book. Yes. Yeah. And all of these things, learning by rote as well, which is just repetition okay. until you remember it. Yeah. Repetition until you remember it. It's repetition until you remember it. When were schools um, first established for free? Uh, in 1880. 1880? Yeah. Say it again. 1880. Yeah. 1880. Yeah. 1880. Yeah. 1880. So that's learning by repetition. <laughs> that's learning by repetition. We'll see if that works. <laughs> You're creating, in effect, the best possible workers that you could have for your society, mm-hmm. while also addressing this problem of people growing up too early for their, to their age. So, so was it like schools or was it like apprenticeships? They were schools. They were, because one of the big lessons of schools at this time, and you could argue today, is you have to do pointless tasks. Yeah. Because that proves that you'll do almost anything for your boss. Mm. Things like write this essay on whatever. Mm. Most people, European, especially... European socialism. socialism. Yeah. <laughs> Most people would just... That has no purpose to their lives. Some mm. it does, but for most it doesn't. It just shows to a boss and to an employer that they are willing to jump through certain hoops to mm. get what they want, mm. which makes them a good worker for me. Yeah. We also have, as well as the schools, these places called reformatories. What do you think reformatories could be? Uh, the Jamie Dodger might go there. Uh, prisons for kids. Yeah, like Borstal kind of stuff. Like, um, they're going to reform you. They're going to make you better. Reform being, like, imagine a piece of Play-Doh. It's in the wrong shape. You reform it into a shape you like better. Yeah. Henry Mayhew, who was a prominent sort of reformer at this time, he said that these are really important. These are going to be a really important way of getting the criminal youth off the streets and doing something constructive to society. However, he also eventually comes to see them more as contributors to criminality rather than preventers. Okay. Well, the reformatory. Yeah. Okay. Because they almost become the same way that prisons can do as well. They become like a finishing school for criminality. Because you you meet with like other jammy dodgers like (laughs) Bourbon and uh, (laughs) Garrett Jacob's Creams. Jacob's Creams. (laughs) And you say, Jacob, um, how do you go about pilfering money off Old ladies. Old ladies, and he'll give you a few tips, and then Dodger will come back, and they'll all share their best practice. Yeah. We have, as well as the reformatories, which don't really work, something that you mentioned earlier, the Boy Scouts. Oh, yeah. Boy Scouts and also military academies, mm. and the idea is that you're calming them down. Mm. Calming down. Well, just, just letting it, letting off some steam. Yes, exactly. Showing the youth that they are redeemable that they can go on and achieve something, that there's an inherent hope in youth, that they are the next generation of empire builders and yeah. people who are going to look after this great empire on which the sun... Never sets. Yeah. The final thing to say about the Victorian era is the development of psychiatry and psychology. don't know the difference between the two. Uh, I'm going to say neither do I. <laughs> but Freud wait. was a psychiatrist. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move, let's <laughs> move quickly on. But Freud is prevalent in this period. I'm going to mention Freud briefly. Mm-hmm. Before this, there had never really been a study of the human mind. There never really been, or certainly no systematic and academic approach to looking at the human mind and how it operates. And particularly in this time, we get looking at young people and the minds of young people and how they work. And it creates this new language of the relationship between the young person and the adult. Freud obviously argues that we're set on our path 
during childhood. Like our childhood experiences dictate what's going to happen later in our life. Yeah. So he points to things like childhood traumas. So um, if we're bitten by a dog or if a dog barks right up in our face when we're really young, mm. that's going to affect us for the rest of our lives. Flinch at chihuahuas. Yeah, you're going to be flinching at chihuahuas for the rest of your life. Yeah. And the only way to address that is to face up to your fear and deal with it. Mm. And what happens if you don't face up with your fear and deal with it? Uh, it becomes a phobia. A phobia? And how do we deal with phobias? How are we supposed to, or how do we actually do it? How do we actually? Uh, scream. Just avoid Well, yeah, we, we build up a set of coping mechanisms. Mm. Like, a more uh, prevalent example of Freud might be something like, if they're scarred by people being really emotional around them, and they mm. really don't like that, when they get older, they're not going to be very emotional. They're going to yeah. use coping mechanisms like... Humour. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to say <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, like humour to deflect and push away. Yeah, yeah. Like someone says, oh, are you okay? And then you make a joke. Yeah. James, are you okay? Uh, knock, knock. <laughs> <laughs> Who's there? Freud. Freud. <laughs> Freud who? Freud's come to help. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we also have, as well as Freud, the development of psychology and a seminal text in there. Oh. Is of course Stanley Hall's Adolescence, released in 1904. You took the words right out. Uh, it's, it's on every good bookshelf. Yeah. He comes up with this narrative of development, as in we go from one stage to the other, a bit like the Greeks did, but in more detail. Mm-hmm. He says, for all youth, it is a period of disturbance. And the, the idea that it's all about trying things that aren't normal. And that being abnormal and doing abnormal things is, well, it's a contradiction, normal. Mm-hmm. And that's what youth is about. Youth will do things that stick in the craw of the old yeah. because they are considered to be abnormal. But that's a normal part of youth happening. Mm-hmm. And passing through those abnormal habits, passing through like a phase where you're really angry or you're really sad or you, you only listen to the Smiths. <laughs> These are all parts of development. Mm. And because he says this, it's a normalisation of this idea of adolescence. He's almost saying, this has happened before, it's happened, it will happen forever, Mm. let's deal with it. It's just making it another period of life. Mm. And when you're old, you're cranky and annoying. When you're really young, you're really excitable. When you're a teenager, you're against the grain. It's up and down. It's up and down. You're ruffling feathers, (laughs) slash going against the grain. Yeah. (laughs) A callback. That's the Victorians, then. Mm. Quite an interesting period, a time of development and a time where the young are almost becoming a distinct group. Mm-hmm. The next group is where it really goes into overdrive. <laughs> the, like the American teenager of the 50s and 60s yeah. are like the previous generations of youth on crack. <laughs> Literally. Literally. And metaphorically. In the 1940s, we first have the use of the word teenager. Really? Yep. That's the first time? The first time it's used is in the 1940s. Wow. Why, do you think? Uh, Is it because they've become their own group? They have to find a name for it. How have they been able to become their own group? Why are those years between, and again, teenage and youth is a vague and ephemeral term, but between like 11 and 22, Mm. why is that period now distinct in Western American life? Because you had to be a certain age to be drafted? No, it hasn't got anything to do with war. Yeah. It's got something to do with what kids of that age would normally be doing. What would they have been doing 100, 200 years ago? 100, 200 years ago, they'd have been working. Working? Yeah. The, and this is, again, another seminal text <laughs> on any good bookshelf, right next to Stanley Hall's adolescence. Can I say it for you? Yeah. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thomas Hines and... The Rise and Fall of the American Teenager. Okay. He argues that during most of the 19th century, so the 1800s, 14-year-olds were viewed as inexperienced adults. Yeah. So they weren't viewed as a distinct group in their self. They were inexperienced adults. You went from being a mouth to feed when you were very young Mm -hmm. to a worker who worked to support their family. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really a bit in between. 
you did your growing up while you were working. As soon as you were old enough to get out into the field or into the factory, you were there. You were doing something. Yeah. As we saw in Britain. Young people throughout most of the 19th centuries weren't really judged by their age. They were judged by their size. Or fatos. <laughs> no, as in like their strength and their ability to do the work. Oh, okay. I doubt there were many fat kids at that time. No. So they were judged by their, essentially by their ability to do the work that they were was asked of them. Okay. He believes that the first yeah. use, of the, use of the word teenager was in Popular Science magazine mm-hmm. in 1941. What's the name of the magazine? Popular Science magazine. Oh, I thought it was a popular no, science. No, it's the, it's popular, the science popular science magazine. magazine. And this is the really important part, and I think this is the thing that sets the tone for the 50s and 60s. He says that this term teenagers and this group of teenagers is latched onto by business and marketeers. What do you think they're going to do now? Now that they realise there's a distinct group. Uh, sell stuff to them. Yeah. Uh. They're creating a whole new market to sell to teenagers. And we're going to have a look at that in a second. First of all, how this teenage culture and this teenage idea comes about. We mentioned that they're moving from simply going from a mouth to feed to a worker, what is filling those years where previously, 100 years ago, they've been working? What are they doing now? School? School, uh-huh. yeah. They're mixing with people of their own age uh-huh. in a co-educational um, environment, so girls and boys, yeah. although it would have been segregated between black and white at this yeah. point. They're mixing with people of their own age, and as a result, when you mi- meet with people of your own age with similar opinions, you share your ideas, be they good or mm-hmm. bad. So they turned into like a, a mass. A mass. Yeah. And the, the idea that your, your friends, your peers, become your primary influencer mm-hmm. rather than your parents. Yeah. Their parents didn't like that. Parents did not like that. <laughs> did not like it at all. And this is where we see things like films a little bit later, but Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. Have you ever seen Rebel Without a Cause? Oh, no, it's got James Dean in it. Right? James Dean. I've only seen clips yeah. and it's, Essentially, James Dean as a truculent, aggressive teenager mm. saying all the tropes, like, I hate you, you can't, you, you can't tell me what to do, like, all that. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And this is where that idea comes from, because it's their friends rather than their parents that are dictating the expectations. Mm. They're meeting with lots of people who are similar. And one thing we know about teenagers, and we're going to come back to this, is that while we've said that the youth are in a period of disturbance and they have the ability to ruffle feathers of the old, yeah. they're also utter sheep, aren't they? You're never more, <laughs> but you're never more impressionable than when you're young, are you? Maybe your target audience here, aren't they? But it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really true. Like, if you right. look at the kids to, of today, mm. all the boys are wearing tracksuit trousers. Mm. All of them. All of them. Brands. Yeah, I think today it's all about um, collective individualism. Yeah, it's very slightly different, but it's all the same. And we're gonna see how this happened. So the fact that they're being influenced by their peers rather than their parents becomes extremely interesting to marketers. What fade? So I'm I'm still ranting on the the younger generation. (laughs) Yeah, but go on, go on. So it's become it's it's seen as an untapped market. They have a spending capacity of $750 million. Oh, wow. Because we're starting to see things like allowances. Yeah, the allowance come into play. And people asking their parents for money. Because throughout all of this, and this has been the sort of thing going on in the background, is economic conditions are changing. Mm. The Western world is getting richer and richer and richer. There's becoming more time for leisure, which means more music, more arts, more fashion, more additionals that aren't the essentials that have been the main preserve of life up until this point mm. and teenagers have money to spend what are they spending it on uh i don't know american like what are they called and they put the straw oh, and they both drink from it together. like milkshakes milkshakes yeah i'm going to the milkshakes milk shakes. Shakes. yeah yeah and a pepsi and all of this feeds into the teenage culture it's mm. it's almost becoming a self-sustaining cycle in the sense that marketers are saying what teenagers do is they go to their 
what they call diners, diners, and they have a milkshake, and they meet their girlfriend, yeah. and then they go home late, and then they're skateboards on their skateboards, and their parents have a go at them because mm. they're too stuck up. Yeah, they'll never understand. No one, no one will understand you except us, the marketers. Yeah, these are considered to be the two events that heralded the sort of kickstart of teenage culture. These were the two big events. Number one. Frank Sinatra's appearance at the Paramount Theatre in New York in 1942 and 43. And one of his shows drew 25,000 sort of teenagers who virtually closed off Midtown Manhattan. And it was that... What, what, what do you think this audience was doing? Do you think they were sitting there calmly? No, they were screaming and squealing and... Which is reminiscent of... Uh, Elvis? Elvis, and then later Beatles. The Beatles, yeah. And how did parents look at each of those stages? <laughs> well, I, I, um, I can't have been too happy. About no, it. Like, well, they, it was like um, they thought they were corrupting the youth with sexualization. Or something. Like with Elvis, is a good example. Yeah. They're like, oh, Elvis, disgusting. Disgu- look at this hip movement. And it's amazing to us now that Frank Sinatra was considered to be the same. <laughs> The you parents know, were like, that's ridiculous, Frank Sinatra, how dare he? <laughs> that's obscene. <laughs> and this happens with each generation. Yeah. That's not to say that each generation doesn't get more obscene, but yeah, it probably it does. does yeah. But the shock that's felt at it is always the same from the older generation. Mm. And always accepted by the younger generation. Here's an interesting side fact about the Frank Sinatra appearance. Mm. People who are market- marketing it, so people who are trying to make money out of it, they hired a group of people to start screaming at the beginning. Oh, clever. Is it all publicity is good? No. Any publicity is good publicity. Yeah. They wanted to create this atmosphere of this is wild, this goes against the, the grain. Yeah. <laughs> so they hired people specifically to scream and to get, get the party started. <laughs> the second key event uh, that kick-started teenage culture in America is the founding of Seventeen magazine. In 1944. Never heard of it. Neither have I. 17, though, I assume Years that's old. your target age. Yeah. Um, and it quickly becomes the chronicler of this emergent teen culture. Uh-huh. So it quickly becomes the source where people go, well, this is what we teenagers do. This is what this is. We go and see Frank Sinatra concerts. We scream and this is cool. And it goes against... Read our Archie comics. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. But <laughs> comics were seen as really out there as well. Really? Yeah. Really? Comics were slightly earlier than this, but comics were like, that is obscene. How can they be... Re- it's, it hasn't even got proper words. This boy is talking to his dog. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> but again, Seventeen Magazine, their advertising department went into extreme. Yeah. Because it, no. It's such a market that you can tap mm. into. It's the untapped market. Yeah. It's because... Because uh, they're sheep. Young, a, lot, a lot of young people act like sheep. So if they see that like, this is what young people have got, they want get, it as well. They want it. Because it, it and lots, I, I would argue lots of people act like sheep, but when you're young, that idea of, I want to have that because they have that, mm. is so much rawer. Uh, you have so many more rough edges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the iPhone. Uh, yeah, like, I want the new iPhone 11 Pro Max, <laughs> rather than just the 11, 11 Pro. Pro. I want Pro Max and I want free cameras. Because this one's got a 98 inch screen rather than a 97.999 inch screen. See, it's almost a parody because yeah. they've got free cameras. <laughs> you don't need three. You only need two. You only need two. maximum two. two. <laughs> I'm going to say two because that's the phone I've got. <laughs> you need two, that's it. But these mm. kids with free, again, we've gone off on a, yeah. a tangent. We're, Ollie, we're sounding like the man. <laughs> we are sounding we like the man. We need to pull that back. Come on, James, calm down. Yeah. Chill out, man. Stay groovy. Yeah, I'll just say that. Call it, cat. (laughs) Because of this marketing, we see a massive economic development for the youth. We see products being aimed specifically at the youth. Mm -hmm. Things like pimple cream to deal with acne and cars. We saw in Ferris Bueller's day off, we heard that quote, that he's obsessed with getting a car. It's all about the car. It's all about the car. We We see it creating an ideal of youth. Rebel Without a Cause, that film, and this idea of youth culture. Yeah. Have you seen that clip from the film? It's called, like, it's about a biker gang. Wild Angels. No. It's where he goes, um, this old fuddy-duddy goes, what exactly is it that you want? And he goes, well, we want to be free. We want to be free to do whatever we want to do. And 
And that essentially sums mm. it up that it hasn't got a clear idea behind it's got, it. it. It doesn't know. Um, it doesn't know what it represents, but it knows it represents not what you're saying. Exactly. It's yeah. it's defined by its opposition to yeah. status quo. Yeah. Populism. Mm-hmm. Oh, linking it back. Now, because this youth culture emerges, and because we have these unique products being made specifically for teenagers, not to say that products hadn't been made for the youth before. There were things like penny dreadfuls which were made in the 19th century which were like what the hell is a penny dreadful <laughs> it was like a really it was a book or a story that cost a penny uh-huh. and it would just tell a really quick crude s- story there once was a man named Enos yeah that, that kind thing. of stuff yeah. um, <laughs> but like really sensational sort of pulp fiction kind of stuff okay pulp fiction is in not the film pulp fiction but is in pulp fiction Yes. So that clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> and also cinema and comics, like I said, mm. that was coming out early. But we really have this boom of teenage products coming out at this point. Mm. And it's an idea of a hedonistic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Hedonistic, what does that mean? Uh, I'm going to let you explain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hand that back to you. I'm going to hand that one Hedonistic means chasing pleasure all the time. Okay. As we saw with Ferris Bueller, it's quick gains, mm. not facing the consequences. Quick high rather than mm. uh, the long. sensible, yeah. boring, boring <laughs> job. If you work every day of your life, by the age of fifty, you could have a pension. <laughs> but I want a car. <laughs> well, they're both years. And this hedonistic lifestyle is made stronger by more stable economic conditions. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go to work really early. You can have free schooling up to the age of 18 and then you can go to college. Mm-hmm. It's also perpetuated and made stronger by the shared idea of what it means to be young. So all these films continually saying you have to oppose your parents or the, yeah. you have to be cool and you have to keep up with the trends. Uh-huh. But for all of this, and this almost brings it up to the modern day, youth is becoming not so much an age, but a class. Okay. In the sense that if we bring it up to the modern, more modern day, punk, for example, and the ideas of punk, Mm -hmm. you can have old men playing punk music. Yes. And old men still living, and especially prevalent in music, living the youth lifestyle. Yes. Living a sort of counter-cultural, going against uh, the, the grain, <laughs> going against the, <laughs> the status quo, yeah. even into their old age. What mm-hmm. do you think of that? Uh, that's interesting. Because it isn't... Punk is all about not being the man. Mm. But when, surely, punk is a victim of its own success. Because mm. it isn't punk all about not being mainstream. But because it becomes so big, it becomes mainstream. mainstream. So, like... Suddenly the kids might not like it. And that's a really interesting point because an article that I read was saying that youth culture has gone from being peripheral on the edge and being in opposition to the status quo Mm. to being the status quo, being central to society. Mm. And our society, and you could argue every society from the 50s onwards, the culture of that society in particular, the music, the fashion, the literature, the ideas... Dictated by the youth. It's dictated by the youth. Music, arts, mm-hmm. but within that, it's fragmented. Within that, it's it's split apart as in like I only like goth fashion, or mm-hmm. I only like uh, Nike. Yeah. I don't wear Adidas. I only right. wear Nike. Even though it's sort of same wine, different bottles, mm. as in it's just being packaged in a different way. Yeah, it's all coming from a youth movement. Mm-hmm. Same production line. Same production. It's like and and again with youth, it's like. We all drink alcohol, but we drink different brands of alcohol. Yeah. That's my brand. I, drink, I can't drink beer, I drink cider. Yeah. can't drink Stella because it's got associations. Exactly. And this all feeds into this idea that youth is seen now, as a, and from the 50s and 60s, as a state of mind rather than a specific period in your development. Mm. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Excellent. So let's conclude. I'm going to ask you to do some conclusions. Sure. My first question to you, what are some of the, the common trails that we've seen? What are some of the things that recurred from ancient Greeks, Victorian, 50s and 60s teenagers? Uh, the old fear the youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to know what that's called, by the way? Ephebiphobia. Just 
Ephebophobia. Ephebophobia. The fear of youth. Okay. Carry on. So yeah, the fear of youth. So the adults display ephebophobia. Yeah. Edit that. So <laughs> um, uh, what else? The youth um, are, all, are always try to be repressed. They try to repress that sort of like urge to explode. I think that leads on to why do they fear the youth? I think it's because um, I think people fear the youth nowadays. Well, the, the reason they say is because like. Oh, they're going to inherit all of this, mm. and they're idiots, and they won't understand yeah. what we're doing. Um, Which is interesting, because that's exactly what was said of this generation, yeah. when they were young. Yeah, and they're doing it now. Yeah. Um, and why else would they fear the youth? I think it's just because it's new ideas. People don't like change. And disturbance of yeah. the status quo. Yeah, everyone likes to be... Everyone likes to have a road to go on. You could argue that... For your teenage years, you're discovering who you are. Mm-hmm. And once you've found who you are, you don't want that to change. Yeah, I've already done it. <laughs> and adults, arguably, it's like, we found who we are, yeah. and you are now a challenge to that. Yeah. G.K. Chesterton yeah. said... Big fan of him. Her. Him. him. You're right this time. Oh, damn it. I believe what really happens in history is this. The old man is always wrong. And the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. The practical form it takes is this. That while the old man may stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. Okay. Alright, so everyone's wrong. (laughs) In essence, (laughs) yeah. And my central argument, Mm. I think, and, you know, challenge me if you don't think this is right, but what I think we've seen from these themes is that young people are, by virtue of their inexperience, by virtue of the fact that they haven't lived their full life yet, both emboldened, strengthened, and also susceptible and weak to the influences and desires of people that they respect and like. Yes. Their peers, as it were, in the 50s and 60s. Yes. Like, um, you, you'd, you'd respect a... Like teenagers now would respect like a not a rock star, so I'm like, all right, I'll get now. <laughs> one of the rock stars in their magazine. <laughs> Those rock stars, they're they're hip hop. Yeah, they like respect influence. Like, yeah, they was well done. They'd respect like a TikTok influencer more than let's say a teacher. Oh yeah, yeah. Not me, but not like you. other teachers. Well, you're yeah. basically. A I'm basically a TikTok influencer. Yeah. But yeah, they would respect someone who does a dance on TikTok more mm. than someone who writes a thoughtful essay on. Yeah. If the guy that did a dance on TikTok said, like, I'm really not a big fan of da-da-da, it would make them think, oh, what do I think about them? Because I'm not a fan of them either. Rather than... Rather than, you know, reading the essay and coming to some thoughtful conclusions. Which leads into this idea that while, as we saw Francis Bacon said, it's a time of moral imagination, Mm. it's also, and by extension of moral imagination, it's also a time of great receptiveness to new and cool ideas. Yeah. That you're more than ever likely to follow a trail of, like, this seems cool, that's lame, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to do this. Yeah. And as a consequence, that you use a sort of unsanded by the grainy conformity of time. <laughs> and they appear to reflect, as a result, the most abrasive and cutting-edge components of a society, mm-hmm. which are, of course, the components most alien and abhorrent to the smooth and old. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's a good message. I know, and a good metaphor as well. A good, very good metaphor. Should we just come go? up with that? Uh, well, I wrote it down, yeah. <laughs> I did come up with that. Yeah, yeah it's quite good. Quick quiz? Quick quiz. Five Sorry. questions? Yeah. Question one. What were... eighteen something. That's coming. <laughs> what were the three stages of life according to the ancient Greeks? Uh, youth, uh, transition. Am, am I wrong already? Well, childhood. Childhood, transition, and adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. Half. Yeah. Question two: When did schools become free for working class children? Eighteen seventy. It's eighteen eighty. What? It? Yeah. Which just goes to show that learning by road doesn't work. So you're on half. Because oh, I said eighteen seventy one to begin with. Yeah. So you're half at the moment. Question three. Which Dickens character embodied many of the fears of youths in Victorian England? Oh, it's not the Jammy Dodger. It's the Artful Dodger. Artful Dodger. Yeah. Question four. 
This is a tricky one. Mm-hmm. When was the word teenager first used? Uh, 1940. Yeah, I'll give you that. I think he said 1941. Uh, what magazine? 17. No. It was a science, fake science monthly. Popular science. God. 1941, yeah. And finally, question five, an easy one. Mm. Who played to 2,500 screaming teenagers at Paramount Theatre in 1942? I was that close to saying Elvis Costello. Because it's not, it's not Elvis Presley. It's not Elvis it's, Costello it's, either. I know it's not. Oh, Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my Excellent. God. Well, you definitely answered those questions in your own way. <laughs> you rattled me. Uh, so that was, what did you get? Half? One and a half? I'll give you a half when you got teenagers. Two. Three. That's not bad. That's not bad. 60%. Oh. Anyway. Next week's episode is going to be a special episode because James is going to actually prepare the information. Yeah. He said, because I was trying to I was saying, what other ideas could we have? And I was thinking some ideas. And then he said, oh, why don't we do one Japan? Mm. And I leapt it and I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Why don't you do one on Japan? Yeah, one exactly like that. What's it going to be on? Any ideas? Uh, civil wars in Japan. Civil wars in Japan. Yeah. Feel free to open that up a little bit if you want. No, no, it applies to a lot of things. Just make sure you get because I want to be tested. I want five questions at the end. I'll, I can I can sort out five okay. questions for you. Excellent. Uh, There's not much I know about, uh, but Japan I know a little more than everything else about. You're an expert. No, the world expert <laughs> on Japan. Uh, authority on Japan. I'm an authority on Japan. You're an authority, not yeah. strong authority. Yeah. So you're the man on Japan. I'm the man on Japan. And I'm, I've been there. Yeah, so have I. I've been there twice. Well, anyway, I'm going to challenge you like a precocious teenager yeah. because you're the man of Japan. Yeah. Um, and we'll do that next week. Yeah, should be good. That's the end of the podcast. Mm. Do you want to say goodbye? Uh, bye. Bye. <laughs>